This is an ABC podcast. There, there is no other alternative for a Prime Minister than the rule of law. To Scott Morrison, stop dealing with this as a political problem and start doing the right thing. Not so much a tin air as a wall of concrete. Having children doesn't guarantee a conscience. Women who have put up with this rubbish and this crap for their entire lives. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. Well, I haven't had a gutful yet. Let's see how this goes, though. Welcome to the party room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RN Drive and Afternoon Briefing. Fran Kelly can't join me this morning, but in her absence is none other than longtime friend of this podcast and of mine and the host of Insiders, David Spears, who's sitting across me in the studio. Hello, David. Hey, PK. And it's always fun to slide into uh, Fran Kelly's party room chair and plenty to discuss this week, of course. I guess the government was probably wanting to spend most of this week leading up to the budget, talking about its um, pre-announcements, its orchestrated leaks, whatever you call them, childcare, disaster relief funding that the PM's been talking about up in North Queensland and so on. But... Of course, ultimately, the focus this week has really uh, been on the India travel ban. And and just to rewind on this, of course, the government first put a temporary flight ban uh, on any flights from India to curb the number of COVID cases in hotel quarantine, worried that the Howard Springs facility was just, well, there were were too many COVID cases in there, that it was too much of a risk. Then on Friday night, midnight, came that press release from Greg Hunt, the health minister, uh, pointing out that an emergency declaration had been made under the Biosecurity Act, that there were criminal penalties, hefty fines, up to five years jail, he said, if anyone did manage to find a way back to Australia from India in a 14-day period. That meant that around 9,000 Australians, and it's now, what, about 900 in a vulnerable situation, Mm -hmm. are stuck in India. And all sorts of criticism uh, from, well, uh, you can go through the list, can't you? The Aussies who are stuck there, the Indian community here, human rights groups, some on the government's own backbench, Labor, uh, and Michael Slater, the the former cricketer who took to Twitter and in fact said uh, there were blood on the hands of the PM over all of this. Now, he, by the way, is apparently uh, in the Maldives where he's managed to get out of India and is, is spending a couple of weeks before he'd be able to come home to Australia. Uh, the PM, look, we have seen a shift, I mm-hmm. think it's fair to say, from him and others. He is saying there's next to uh, no chance, zero chance that anyone's going to go to jail. Well, we can get into this, but to me that raises a question about separation of powers here because normally, yes, governments, parliaments decide what the laws are. Courts decide how they're applied and the penalties that are applied. Mm. But let's leave that to one side. Beyond saying, look, no one's going to go to jail, he's not really backing down on the ban itself just yet. It's my responsibility to do everything I can to prevent a third wave in this country. And so I make no apologies for that. And I thank particularly the Indian community here in Australia and overseas for their patience and their understanding. Their patience and their understanding, David, although I'm not so sure uh, they do understand. That was, of course, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, defending the India travel ban at Beef Week. David, the politics of this are, are pretty out there, right? I mean... Let's just talk about how significant this is. We have banned our own citizens, Mm. right, from coming home to their own country. It is a pretty big call. It's a big deal. It's a huge deal and it feels instinctively immoral or or not, not Australian to say that if you are an Australian, you can't come home. That's why it's had such a strong reaction. Now, the government keeps saying it's just a temporary measure. It's about getting things under control, you know, and Mm. I think they feel like they can ride it out because of that, the backlash. 
And I also think they, and this is really key, I think they think ultimately they have the public on their side. This is, I think this is absolutely right. And, you know, having spoken to a number of government MPs, um, I had a chat just yesterday to Barnaby Joyce, who was the minister that wrote the, the Biosecurity Act as Agriculture Minister back in 2015 that we're talking about here. I mean, he made the point, look, no one in Tamworth, where he is, wants to see a, COVID, a deadly COVID outbreak here. And he says, I don't think anyone in any electorate does. And I think that's true. And this goes to, I mean, yes, we can talk about the politics that underlie this uh, and whether there is indeed stronger support than perhaps a, a lot of the commentary it suggests for what the PM's done here. And perhaps this is also Morrison seeing what's happened at the state level. We've had, what, five state mm-hmm. and territory elections since the pandemic began. And in every one of them, Tasmania is the most recent example on Saturday. Governments who've taken a hard line on the borders to keep COVID out have been rewarded. And I do think we've seen a shift from the Morrison government in its risk appetite. Uh, it is you know, no longer even willing to let this level of risk of bringing Australian citizens in and quarantining them, that's too much of a risk. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's this fortress Australia feeling. I spoke to a government MP who said to me, it was just such a good line, he said to me, when you look at the way we're behaving, right, at the moment, someone who thinks this has gone too far, the white Australia policy doesn't seem that surprising anymore, does it? <laughs> and I was like, no, you're right. Like this idea that we're an island and we shut down. And this, there's a really a lot of hardline politics in some of this. And if you look at why the Indian Australian community is upset, I have a lot of sympathy, I've got to say, and people will know that from listening to my, my programs, mm. for their view, because they feel like when things got out of control, and they did in the United Kingdom and the United States, this response was not the response we saw from our government. Well, see, this is where the accusation of racism comes in. I don't know what you think about this, this PK, but you know, your reference to white Australia policy, I think, is, is quite a potent one. Look, obviously, the government bristles at the suggestion that race is a factor here. I think you know, it, it may not be, but it hasn't helped itself, the government, by inconsistent messaging at the very least around this. Now, they will argue that the same rules did apply earlier on in this pandemic. But, you know, don't forget, even when we did shut the border to China, we still brought repatriation flights to, to from Wuhan to Christmas Island. Uh, this is the only time we've seen a press release issued by the health minister at midnight saying you can go to, you, you face jail terms and, and big fines, even for Australian citizens. It's a different messaging around this. So I can see why there is this sensitivity there. I'm not saying that this is based on racism, but I can see why some have reacted that way. Yeah, because they can see a double standard. Mm. So they think, well, why the double standard? Is it because we're brown? That's sorry, but that is the question they've said they've raised. Is that the reason? Now, the government answers, no, it's not. It's because the situation is out of control in India. It's temporary. Of course, you're our citizens and we Mm. want you back. That's what they say, right? And I think that all the ones I've spoken to at least, that's what they believe. But is there an unconscious bias thing going on here? I think that is worth asking. Now, you can't prove it. I can't prove it. But the reaction was absolutely nuclear over this, and I didn't see it with those other situations. And I would be very, very upset if I was an Australian. And remember, to become an Australian citizen, if you are of, of Indian heritage, you had to get rid of your Indian citizenship. Yeah, you can't have dual. That's a big deal for some of us who have other heritage. I'm yeah. a Greek citizen as well. People know I'm a dual citizen, right? I've said yeah. it before. To renounce one of my citizenships would be a very big emotional journey for me, and it yeah. is for many people. They are Australians. 
they're visiting relatives or doing something for very personal well, reasons I mean, and they're banned from coming home. There's all this criticism from some that, um, sure, they might have become Australian citizens, but they've gone back for weddings and so on. And, you know, they, they, they took the risk. They knew what they were getting into. Some maybe, but there are others clearly who have gone to, you know, hold the hand of a dying mother. Uh, who have gone to sort out the details for a family member in crisis, and they they've ended they've wound up stuck there. Uh, you know, I I do have sympathy for many of those, particularly in a vulnerable situation, uh, who have found themselves caught up in this. Bottom line, I think all of this does underline the failure, let's call it, to make sure we have adequate quarantine to be able to bring back Australians Bingo. in crisis. Yes, that's the that's the big piece here. And this argument's been bubbling on, you know, for months and months and months. The PM this week and, and indeed last week, just before all of this escalated, was uh, he was actually up visiting the Howard Springs facility. He's been talking a lot about that in the ramp up. They're getting it up to 2,000, so doubling the capacity. And I think that's great because it, it's a it's a terrific facility for this. It hasn't had a, a, a breach, but there is there are some issues there. It's still taking a while to get to 2,000. They still need a hell of a lot more staff, more than 400 additional staff. And apparently the Territory and the Commonwealth can't find them at the moment. So... Yeah, there's still a bit of a question mark, I think, as to whether they will be able to get that up and running to that extra capacity in time. No, and 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 that is an issue, and Ausmat's still going to be used as a result, even though the Northern Territory has taken it over. I spoke to the Northern Territory Health Minister on Drive, yeah. who was talking about the transactions around that and trying to keep it, you know, scale it up, but also keep it safe. All of the, the difficult issues. But the underlying issue is we are now, if you look at all the estimates, in a situation where for the next two to three years we are going to have to quarantine people. Even if we vaccinate our whole country and we want to, there is a sense of urgency around that. It's a whole other topic, but we need to do it. Doesn't mean we don't have to live with COVID or that it won't spread. We are going to have to quarantine our own citizens or if we open the borders to international yeah. students or you know business all of these things we want to do to and be I part do of think, the world I do think it's interesting that the prime minister at least is sounding pretty positive about the Victorian proposal uh, there were some like Peter Dutton who said it was smoke and mirrors. They'd sprung it on the Commonwealth, and they did. Um, and they want the Commonwealth to pay for it. But the PM now is saying, no, this is a welcome proposal. This is a comprehensive proposal. This is being looked at by the federal government very closely. I just think that's that's an interesting shift that we are now seeing a willingness to at least consider greater capacity, particularly purpose-built quarantine, because as you say, we're going to need this for some time. Um, you know, particularly if the vaccine rollout, not just here, but around the world in places like India, in places like PNG, right, right around the world, unless that really improves. Just one more comment before we bring in our mm. guest in relation to this India ban. We've seen a lot of bipartisanship broadly on the tough border approach mm. to keeping COVID out, but there was a splintering, if you like, from Labor this week yep. on this issue, which I thought was interesting you know, they they supported the flight ban they from did. India, for yep. instance, right? So they did support that. But then when the citizen ban, you know, the, the, the sort extreme. of- Yeah. They drew the line there. Yeah. Now, the argument I've even put it to Labor people who I've interviewed is, well, you voted for these laws. Like you can't- They did. Yeah. You voted for them. It was always possible. Now the government's using them. We have to have a conversation about whether the laws are also- 
It's interesting. Yeah, I, too tough. Yeah, Full I went stop. back and had a good look at the Biosecurity Act and wrote about it uh, for an online piece this week. This was passed in 2015. In fact, biggest piece of legislation, I think, uh, ever passed. More than 600 pages, huge. Barnaby Joyce was the minister, which is why I had a chat with him to see what he thinks. He, by the way, fully supports you know how it's being used now. But back at the time, there wasn't a lot of coverage and uh, analysis around the Act and, and all these extraordinary powers in it. And it first came to attention with... Pistol and Boo, remember? <laughs> yeah. Johnny Depp and Amber Heard's uh, dogs, their terriers, their Yorkshire terriers, they smuggled them into Queensland without quarantine and so on. And, it be- and Barnaby blew up and he had the whole, you know, you, they either have to leave the country in two days or they're being put down. And this, of course, you know, gave late night comedians uh, all sorts of fodder around the world. And, and, and the dogs were quickly evacuated, by the way. They weren't uh, destroyed. But that was, I guess... Still widely seen, I think, as, gee, this is good that Australia is protecting its animals and plants with this new Biosecurity Act, and it's really tough, and isn't that great? We've got so many unique things we need to protect. None of us really gave enough attention, I think, to the human. Yeah, we thought it was always going to be a pu- pu- puppy <laughs> or a plant. But along comes the pandemic, and Christian Porter said when it hit last year, this Biosecurity Act has some strange and foreign powers, as far as many Australians are used to, and he was right. And I think we, you know, we saw some discussion around what the powers meant, but not the discussion until now around what it could, or how it could be interpreted by the, the federal government to ban citizens coming back home. And that's now you know, being challenged in the courts as to whether it can be interpreted that way and whether that's constitutional. But the Act itself has extraordinary uh, powers for the health minister to do something like this. So yeah, I think it's, a, it's been a real sleeper, one we probably all missed when it went through the parliament. For Labor, yes, they backed it at the time, but yes, they've been critical now. And yes, they're saying, you know, various people in Labor I've spoken to said, why don't we send even the Prime Minister's um, BBJ VIP Mm. flight? That Mm -hmm. can actually get to India and back. Bill Shorten told me, you know, we've sent warships to help Australians in trouble before. So, yeah, they're, they're pretty anxious about the fact that Aussies have been left high and dry like this. Shall we bring our guest in? Let's. Sabra Lane, the host of AM. Welcome to the party room. And Sabra, I've always wanted to tell you this. You have the perfect name for a journalist. Well, thank you very much, PK. PK, can I just say, nice uh, surplus fairy wand there. And (laughs) Spearsy, that's a bit cheeky of you bringing in those uh, back in black mugs. Did you swipe those from Josh Frydenberg? <laughs> Red is the new black, Sabra, didn't you hear? Red is the new oh, black. Right. We'll get we'll get some coffee right. mugs uh, made up. Hey, Sabra, we were just talking, uh, obviously, about the India travel ban and, and so on. And whether the Prime Minister has been learning, I suppose, from some of the state and territory election results, and, and, and the most recent, of course, is where you are in Tasmania. Just remind us how big an issue COVID played in that election and whether you do think... Scott Morrison's paying attention to what voters are saying through these elections. Yeah, well, COVID played a really big role in the election. There is no doubt about that. And Peter Gutwin, the Premier, who looks like he has uh, been returned with a majority, will know that next uh, next week when they hit the um, hair clerk button to disperse all the preferences, but we'll get to that in a tick. He ran really strongly on COVID management. You know, who do you want in the chair when the next one happens? They had ads running along those lines, so they campaigned pretty hard on this. Labor, it has to be said, was pretty distracted for the first 10 days of their campaign with internal politicking over uh, candidate 
pre-selection and the fact that they initially didn't pre-select one of the most popular people on their ticket, someone who ended up getting a quota in their own right and is touted as a future leader, leader of the Labor Party here. The Labor leader has acknowledged today that the bickering over that cost them valuable time in a campaign that was pretty short because this election was called early. It was called nearly 12 months of when it was expected. And it was largely done because people believed that the the Premier really wanted to capitalise on that. And he wanted a majority uh, voted. He saw Mark McGowan and said, I'll have a bit of that. Yeah, Yeah, he did. He did. Almost you know, Hare Clark is a bit tricky and it almost didn't pay off because we still don't know what the outcome is for the Legislative Assembly. Mm. Um, even though you look at the last election result, the Liberal Party got more than 50% of the uh, primary vote and it only led to a one-seat majority in the, the Assembly here. So sometimes big majorities just aren't reflected in what actually happens in the Hare Clark system. Mm. So we will know that anyway. But, I mean, there'll be... Um, a lot of soul searching on the Labor side um, in in a seat that it used to do sort of traditionally well, uh, the seat of Clark, which used to be called the seat of Denison. Labor only scored twenty two percent of the primary ouch. vote there. Yeah, that is a big ouch. It looks like they might only have one person elected in that seat. It's a five seat electorate, as they all are here that's in a, the that's Tasmania. A, that's a really poor result. What about the, the Bass that's and Braddon votes for Labor? That, because these are seats then, they really need to be picking back up federally. They do. Um, Bass, very strong for Peter Gutwin, but that's very much seen as a personal reflection mm. of his support. He uh, almost got three quotas in his own right. You know, there are other senior ministers, liberal ministers in that seat as well, but that's very much seen as a personal reflection and endorsement of his leadership in that seat. And still quite strong in Braddon, although they had some issues there too with a candidate that they had pre-selected, Adam Brooks, who's got some, you know, he still has a cloud over him because the police um, have summoned him to appear in court over some ammunition charges. But not only that, there were some women who went public late in the campaign saying that they dated this chap thinking he was somebody else and that he's oh, allegedly br- flashed flashed a Victorian licence oh. with a different name, but the photo of him. Um, the Premier has gone to his defence and said that he believes him so far, but I mean, that's all yet to play out. And if perchance there is the remote chance that the government doesn't win those 13 seats, they're, they're still confident it might go their way and, and it might go their way, but there's still the outside chance that it might not go their way. Mm. I mean, the government might be in the awkward position of relying on his vote. Well, look, notwithstanding that, just just coming back to, I guess, this question around how Tasmania, WA, Queensland, Northern Territory, ACT election results since the pandemic began... Uh, have all returned incumbents and, you know, in some cases, very strongly so. Do you think, Sabra, that's shifted the federal government, the Morrison government's risk appetite when it comes to COVID? Is it now heading more towards the elimination strategy that, you know, it used to bag the states about? You have to wonder about Mm. that, Spearsy. It used to bag the states for the shutting down of borders. But when you look at the decision that it issued on the weekend in regards to people travelling from India to Australia, it has to be said, a media release issued after midnight, banning Australian citizens from coming to Australia, that's effectively a border shutdown like the states. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's it's exactly the same. Look, David and I were talking about 
you know, the way that the Indian Australian community feels about this, clearly there's a lot of strong emotions and, and you can understand why. The Foreign Affairs Minister, Maurice Payne, has flatly denied that the temporary India travel ban is a racist decision, the Prime Minister saying the same. Uh, on Sunday, she said that it is entirely founded on the advice of the Chief Medical Officer, but some in the Indian Australian community are outraged. Earlier this week, I spoke to Dr Nisha Knott, a Melbourne-based, uh, obstetrician whose parents were in India and I asked her if she thought the decision was racist. Here's what she said. Certainly it has made me think that my Australian citizenship is worth less than the citizenship of some of the other Australians who don't come from India. And that is the sentiment of many. I'm not saying all but absolutely many in the community and they're hearing it loudly. That means that some of the government backbench, Sabra, have been speaking out. We've seen quite a few people put their hands up and say they're not comfortable with this decision. But David and I were saying, on balance, the government feels pretty much like it's on solid ground on this because of this Fortress Australia feeling. That's right. And we've heard from uh, Alex Hawke, the immigration minister as well, say that he believes that the majority of Australians are on the government's side on this particular one, given that we've seen how devastating that second wave is in India and the variants and what damage that's doing. And I mean, the Prime Minister argued late last week that they needed to be looking particularly at this because of the number of people that were coming from India who had this um, particular variant, that the system wasn't coping with so many people in hotel quarantine that were turning up with this particular strain of the virus. It might well be, but as you say, PK, um, we've been hearing all week from people saying, what's the value of citizenship? There is this acknowledgement that if you take out the citizenship of the country and you pledge allegiance, that there'll be some sort of return in that in your hour of need, that the government will be there to help you out. The government hasn't been this time. Yeah, and at least not threatening to lock you up. Sabra, I think many may have missed it, but there's a budget coming up next week. (laughs) We're only days away. Uh, Look, this is another critical budget in a different, I guess, phase of the pandemic from uh, the budget, the delayed budget last year, which was handed down in October. So we're only sort of seven months on from that. The Treasurer has already given, you know, I thought a really important speech a week earlier saying shift in our fiscal approach, our budget strategy, we're now going to keep on spending. Getting uh, more people into work is now the priority, not uh, you know, chipping away at the, the mountain of debt. What, what does that mean, Sabra, do you think we're likely to see in this budget? Well, we're seeing some of it already. Government going to be spending more on childcare, billions more on infrastructure. They've talked about jobs. Uh, there is a large number of Australians who would like to be working more, there are a number of Australians who are still saying it's they do want to work, but they just can't find it. So the government's going to be ha- having to address those particular things. Spearsy and PK, we're also expecting more announcements in re- regards to aged care, although I'm not sure that we're going to get it all in the budget because they've also mm. sort of been um, fudging the line on that. And mental health. So there are all these expectations that the government's going to be delivering on those things, and none of those things come Cheaply, no, especially not. if if you're promising to do things differently. They can't be just promising, well, that, surely H-Cares, not, to be spending money yeah. on the same H-Cares way really of delivering policy. Yeah, aged care is a really good yeah. example of that because you know, what's needed in aged care are more staff, right? Whether it's in yeah. residential care or whether it's in home care packages that you know, clearly the government, both sides, want to move, want you know, want to roll out more of those. But you're going to need more staff.
staff. Mm. And you can't just snap your fingers and have more aged care staff, particularly when a lot of temporary workers aren't coming in because of the border closure. So I'll be Correct. fascinated to see what they do, whether it's um, caring staff, uh, this sort of caring workforce, whether it's aged care, disability care, child care, is a big, big issue and I think a growing problem. And we've got a lot of unemployment still at the moment and yet this shortage of people in caring roles. Whether there are mechanisms, plans, schemes, incentives they can yeah. they can unri- uh, unroll in this budget that get the unemployed into caring careers and and sell See, them as you know th- this is a career where you can have a career you can have you know advancement you can have a successful career I think this is is mm. something that government can really play a role in. There've also been tantalising little hints too from Stuart Robert. Uh, questions put to him about, well, what about the foreign students who are here who can't work more mm. hours? Uh, what about uh, older Australians who'd really like to find work but can't? And he said that uh, he doesn't want to take uh, Josh Frydenberg's thunder. So maybe, <laughs> you know, okay. maybe a bit of a there are expectations on those things next week. I don't know. We'll have to wait until yeah. Tuesday night. Look, I don't think it's possible that Stuart Robert could ever take Josh Frydenberg's thunder. But anyway, that's just a sort of commentary on their political skills, um, and I feel confident in that commentary. Uh, Look, they've got to neutralise their woman problem, right? That's their big thing in this budget too. That's why we saw the childcare announcement. I wonder what you both think on how this might affect Labor's plans. Now, people might be listening going, why are you even talking about Labor? I'll tell you why. Because that election isn't that far away, Mm. and... You've got to look at this upcoming budget in that framework that, you know, this is an election setting budget as well. And childcare, um, you know, funding a more feminised friendly budget has been Labor's approach to contrast from the Prime Minister. The Treasurer and the Prime Minister are now working on trying to fix that. I don't know how quickly they can fix that, Sabra, but that does pose an issue for Labor, doesn't it, about how it approaches these issues too. For sure. Labor has for many years talked about applying a gender lens to the budget. They've already said on the policy that the government announced this week that it was a sort of poor imitation of their own in regards to childcare. Certainly it will be worried about that because um, people will be thinking, well, if the government's addressing it, maybe, you know, they're listening to what we're saying and maybe we should stick with the incumbent. I mean, usually uh, in times of crisis and trouble, voters do tend to stick with the incumbents, but it will pose a problem for Labor because how do they d- differentiate the, their policy if um, copying something yeah. is the best uh, form of flattery? So um, it'll be interesting to see what Anthony Albanese turns up with his budget and reply well, Thursday I, yeah. week as well. <clears throat> I, I, I think uh, I understand Labor now views they have more room to move on this. They want to move, their, their plan is to move to universal 90% subsidies for childcare, right? So right up the income scale, but only after a Productivity Commission review in their first term of government. I'll be interested to see if they can speed that up, um, you know, it, it commit a bit more money now that the government's gone there. That, as you rightly point out, Sabra, Labor needs to give voters a reason to yeah. change. A reason to change is, is easy to say, not easy to actually plant in the minds of swinging voters. So, yeah, childcare is, is clearly um, a, a big issue, so I would expect they'd go further. But 
But this budget too will have, I mean, I don't know how often the Women's Task Force of Cabinet has met since it was assembled post the uh, Brittany Higgins um, crisis for the government, uh, but how much input they've had in this budget, I suspect we'll see some more on women's economic security, maybe superannuation yes. changes and so on. But I think a lot more will be rolled out post the budget over the, the, the months that follow later this year. Now, Sabra, we're recording this on a Thursday morning. So, as you know, as we've been talking, Gladys Berejiklian and the New South Wales Premier has been giving an update on that locally acquired COVID case from Sydney's eastern suburbs. We now know there's another case. The man's wife also has contracted COVID-19. And we know that there's a whole bunch of new restrictions over the next week or so that have been imposed in New South Wales you know, reasonable steps, masks on public transport, things like no dancing, no more dancing. So nightclubbers no beware, no lockdown, mm. but more restrictions, David. Mm. It just demonstrates, right, that we're not vaccinated. Vaccination rates are very low in this country. We're still in the old normal, last year's normal, aren't we? Yeah, look, we are. This is telling, though, the way Gladys Berejiklian handles this compared to a Mark McGowan or, or some other premiers. Um, I think you know we're only a day into this and... Let's hope it is just the one extra case, which I think is his partner. Is that yeah. right? You know, this is the bloke who went to the movies, went to half a dozen barbecue shops, God love him, and uh, everywhere else. I think it'll be very lucky if it is just one additional case. Yeah. Uh, we'll see in the days that that, that follow. But uh, yeah, it, it is a reminder, isn't it, that, gosh, we're a long way from being in the herd immunity phase where we can take a, a more risk, relaxed, a, a relaxed mm. approach yeah. to, uh, to COVID. Yeah. We're also seeing uh, PK and Spearsy. I know that you're big AFL fans, but uh, one of the cafes that this bloke visited was also visited by the Sydney Swans coach and assistants. So those guys are also isolating until they're in the clear. So just goes to show you um, how widespread these things potentially can be. Yeah, and, and I think the New South Wales Treasurer too. Yeah, he's tested yep. negative, but he was a close contact. Yeah. So, yeah, it uh, doesn't take much. No, small country, hey. Hey, Sabra, I know you're living your best life in Tassie, so thank you for making some time for us because you prefer to be bushwalking now, right? <laughs> no, yeah, no, but thanks for inviting me on the party bus. It looks suspiciously like the Coalition's old debt bus that you've um, repainted there. Nice work. Well spotted, well spotted. Well spotted. See you, Sabra. See you, Sabra. Ciao. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for our question time. This week's question comes from Chris, who writes, if a minister makes a decision on their portfolio, does the Prime Minister have the authority to overrule that decision? I know that politically it would not be a good look, but can it be done? Look, technically, yes. Uh, ministers do have complete discretion in a lot of areas, um, you know, whether it's immigration decisions, I'm thinking environmental approvals, foreign investment decisions as well. Uh, uh, they do, and they do actually make those decisions without the Prime Minister's you know, um, say-so. Uh, the department will often make a recommendation in these cases. The minister either accepts or rejects. Where it's politically sensitive, though, of course, it's run by the, P the mm. PM. I mean, does anyone think Alex Hawke, the immigration minister, is going to release the Biloela family without running it by the PM? Does anyone mm. think a, um, you know, a, a, a big Chinese investment is going to be approved without the Treasurer at least running it by the PM? So I think where it's politically sensitive, absolutely, it goes up to the top of the tree. But a lot of stuff actually doesn't need to. And a lot of stuff you wouldn't even know about, right? There, yep. You know, there is... 
if you look at how there's very few things we actually talk about. There's a lot of bipartisan yeah. things that go through that are uncontroversial that we don't even hear about. But you're right. I mean, you know, the Bill of Wheeler family was a great example. That is something that, yeah, the immigration minister has the power Technically, over. he could yeah? let them go. But there is no, no. chance <laughs> that the Prime Minister wouldn't be involved in that decision. Well, we love your questions, so please send them in um, because we love getting them. You can tweet using the hashtag The Party Room or you can email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. Follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app. And that's it for The Party Room this week. Thanks for having me, PK. I love it when you're here. Thank you so much. And I'll see you, of course, next week in Canberra yes. for the budget. Don't forget the coat and the scarf. Yeah. Uh, oh, I know. I've been thinking about that. I'll be back in your feeds next week with a special budget edition of the podcast on Wednesday. Then Fran and I will do our normal episode on the Thursday as well. So it's a big week for The Party Room, big week for Australia, big week. Just I like saying big. Uh, David, thanks for your time. Thanks, see PK. Ya. See ya. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.